Uh, I have been listening to uh, a podcast recently. I think I just read the last couple of weeks that it's one of the most listened to podcasts the last couple of months in the U.S. anyway, and it's called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Christianity Today has produced this podcast. And what it does is it, it kind of chronicles what has happened with the church Mars Hill in Seattle through the years. If you don't know the story of Mars Hill, uh, back in the 90s, it started and it grew to be one of the biggest churches in the United States. And then about 10 years ago, it kind of all came crashing, burning down and fell apart. And the, this podcast kind of chronicles what happens. And when you listen to it, what it details is problems with leadership that were in the church, uh, really kind of around pride and arrogance. And what happened is, is it kind of grew and, and took off. And, and when you listen to it, I'll be honest, it's, it's sad and, uh, it's frustrating. Uh, it parts when you're going through it. Uh, to be honest, uh, I get really angry listening to it. Uh, some of the things that are there and that, w- that were taking place and what happened. And, and in a lot of ways, it's almost like uh, uh, driving by a car crash, right? Like you don't want to look, but you can't turn away and, and you keep kind of. And, and so as I've been listening to this, I, I keep coming back to like, is this worth the time invested in this? Is this something worth listening to? Is it worth kind of going through this whole story and hearing what happened? Because so often with stories like this, you listen to it and you get sucked in and it's almost like because of gossip in a way, right? Like to, to see what, how they failed and, and what they did wrong. And you can start to listen to it and you can feel in yourself like, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Or, or you might go, I would never do that. I can't believe they got sucked into that kind of thinking or that. And quickly you feel your pride kind of welling up. And so it's kind of dangerous at at different times. And so as I was thinking about it, it's like, is that listening to that? What does that do? What does that do in my own heart? And how do I approach that? And it made me think of something that says in in Luke chapter 18, as Jesus is telling uh, a pretty famous story of, uh, he tells the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee that go into the temple to pray. And if you know this story, it says the, the, tax, uh, the Pharisee goes in and he stands in the temple and he prays very loudly. I thank God that I'm not like other men and I'm not like those sinners and those people that do all these things. And he's, he's kind of puffing himself up. And then Jesus says the tax collector came in and he stood off in the corner and he wouldn't look up and he just beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus tells the story and he says that the tax collector is the one that went away justified. But what struck me this week, I just happened to be reading through Luke in my own uh, kind of devotions. And it, right before that story, in Luke chapter 18, Luke writes, he says, Jesus told the story for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those who trusted in their own righteousness and then treated others with contempt. And I thought, man, if I listen to that podcast and I slip into that kind of thinking, those that are righteous that treat others with contempt, then it is a waste of my time and it's not helpful at all. But if we approach those things with it as a mirror to our own heart and we recognize that I too am susceptible to the very same things, the same pride and the same arrogance. And if I'm not careful that I can easily slip into those things, then maybe it is worth our time. It is worth it to, to kind of see those things and be on the lookout for those in our own heart And so it's important that we see that, that we know that, that we too are susceptible of that same pride and that same arrogance. You know, pride is so destructive in the life of any of us. 
And it's really destructive partly because it goes so easily unrecognized in ourselves. When we become proud, it's so easy to not see it. And that's one of those things that we can all struggle with. And so the root of so many of our own problems and our relationships, I think the root of so many of the divisions we see in the world today, uh, so much of what we, we, we see uh, just in the way people uh, talk to one another. You see it a lot on social media and the way people kind of give full vent to what they think and their opinions and their feelings. And so much of that is rooted in pride. It actually makes me think of Proverbs 29 when it says, fools give full vent to their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. We live in a time when we all give full vent to everything we think and so much of it is rooted in our pride. That I've figured this out and I understand and I know and it's so destructive and we're all so susceptible to it. And what happens is it leads us not to admit that we're wrong, not to consider other people's opinions. And so it is everywhere. And it really goes to what we've been talking about in the book of Daniel. When we started in this book at the very beginning, I said that what we see throughout this uh, book is, is God has inspired it for us is this call of, uh, or the allure, I should say, of Babylon, right? So Daniel and his friends are very uh, literally living in the midst of Babylon. But the very first week when we talked about this, we said Babylon is a real place in history, but it's also an idea that we see repeating throughout scripture. And the idea is just simply this, that human institutions demand our allegiance to the seed of the serpent. So I said it the first week. And what I mean by that is the seed of the serpent is Satan in the very beginning uh, with the original sin in Genesis chapter three. The way in which he tempts us is that you don't need God, that you yourself can be God and you can do it all yourself. And that's what the world tells us. That's what the seed of the serpent says. And that's how Babylon works. And all of that is built on our pride. The very heart of that is this idea that we can do it ourselves and we don't need anyone else and I'm the center of the world. And so it's the fuel at which Babylon continues, the fire of Babylon continues to rage. And so I want us this morning as we get to chapter four and we get to this retelling of what God does in Nebuchadnezzar's life as he's kind of retelling us what happens and we look at Nebuchadnezzar here, I want us to see this idea of pride and how God deals with him. Now, we've been introduced to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. If you've been with us, this is now chapter four. He's been in all, uh, all, every chapter so far, all three of the first three chapters. And we see him and what we know about Nebuchadnezzar is he is an absolute monarch. He is a king who is cruel, who is violent, who is kind of given to fits of rage. Uh, I would say what we've seen so far in the first three chapters is he's kind of fragile he has these dreams and they shake him desperately. We saw that in chapter two. We see that again here in chapter four. And he's basically a mess. But one of the things that we see with Nebuchadnezzar is he is full of pride and arrogance. And so God is going to deal with his pride here in chapter four. And so this is the way I want us to look at it as we, we consider what's happening here. First, I want us to just consider the problem of spiritual pride. And I'll talk about what I mean by that when I say spiritual pride. And so I want us to think about this problem of spiritual pride. And we're going to ask, what is it? Where does it lead? And then how do we address it? And I think we see that in Daniel chapter four. So what is it? Where does it lead? And how do we address it? And so let's just start with the first part, this problem of spiritual pride. And what do I mean when I say that? What is it? What are we talking about when we say the spiritual pride that is so very destructive? 
And so I want us to define what it means in the, in the way of a, a heart condition, the way that we see the world, the way that we experience things, kind of in the, our very soul, our being, the way we see who we are in the world around us. Because we could say if we just took the definition of pride, and the definition of pride is simply a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. That's not really a bad thing. In and of itself, as you put that on its face, in a lot of ways, that could actually be uh, a good thing. Uh, I'll give you an example. Just this week, uh, Thursday night, Asher and, and Quinn and Joanna and I are sitting in the living room and we're going over, uh, we're quizzing them on their things for their tests this week. They have tests on Friday and all these, Quinn's got vocabulary, Asher's got uh, world government. They're asking all these questions. They've been studying it for their tests and then it's here, quiz me, help me with this. And so we're going through their their things We've, we're, uh, with Quinn going through his words, making sure he knows them, right? So they go off to school the next day. They've put the time in. They've worked on it. They go off to school. They come home the next day. Quinn walks in the door and I say, how was your vocabulary test? How did it go? And he goes, great. Got a 95. I did really well. Got an A on it. And you're like, way to go, buddy. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. Or I might say, I didn't say it to another day, but I might say to him, you should be proud of yourself. You went and you put the work in and you studied the, the words and you took responsibility for it and you knew what you had to learn and you went through it and you did it and you did a good job. And that's taking pleasure uh, or satisfaction derived from your achievement. And that's not a bad thing, right? Personal responsibility, using the gifts that you've been given, doing your very best, that's a good thing. We want to honor God with the gifts that he's given us. But where it becomes an issue, and it kind of slides into this idea of, of spiritual pride, and I read this this week uh, from one commentator, and I like the way they said it. I think they, they capture it well. It's that which claims to be the author of what is a gift. That which claims to be the author of what is a gift. And that's where I start to take pride, pleasure, derivement in my accomplishments, even things that I didn't actually accomplish that are a gift, that I didn't do. I'll give you an example, maybe another example. Imagine two friends, say uh, two young men, sixth grade. They both love football and they start to practice football together. About the same height, weight, size. They both want to be wide receivers. And they're best friends and they love football. And so they dedicate uh, all their uh, free time to getting better at football. And they lift weights and they eat right and they start going to camps together. They throw the ball together every day. They're running drills. They're doing all these things. And they're very best friends and they play football all the way through high school and they get to the end of their high school years and they're both wanting to go play in college. Player one uh, goes out and they time his 40 and he does his vertical jump and they do all these things that measure and he runs a five-second 40-yard dash. If you don't know, five-second 40-yard dash is about what I would run. If uh, on a good day, it's slow. <laughs> You're not going to play in college as a wide receiver if you run a 40-yard dash in five seconds. And let's say that they measure his vertical leap and it's 24 inches. Not very good. Not real explosive. Not a great athlete. And so here he's been doing all these things. And then they time his buddy that they've been doing all the exact same things, the same workouts, the same eating, the same lifting weights, and he runs a 4340. And if you don't know, that's really fast, like really fast. And they, t- they do his vertical jump and it's 42 inches. That's really high and really explosive. And here's these two guys that have done all the exact same things, their whole uh, growing up together. And all of a sudden one is way ahead of the other. Why is that? 
What happened? You know the answer, right? One has the genetics to be a great athlete and one doesn't. One has fast twitch muscles in abundance that he can run that fast and jump that high and the other doesn't. And you look at that and you start to go, well, yeah, there's a whole host of things that went into that, who their parents are and their genetics and their grandparents and all these things that play into that or a whole host of things that neither one could take credit for. But yet we do. We go, ah, look at how fast I am and look at what I did and look at what I, right? We start to take credit to being the author of something that was a gift, that God had blessed one of those two with great athleticism and the other one didn't have it. And we start to start, we start to see things like that as look at what I have done and we start to take credit for things that are actually a gift. What we see in the book of Daniel is that's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He starts to go, look at how great I am and look at what I've done and look at what I've accomplished. And what we've seen so far in the book of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar is really bound up in his accomplishments. It's kind of the heart of who he is. It's his identity as the king and the one who's ruling over Babylon, right? It's why his dream in chapter two, if you remember the dream that he had in chapter two, that Daniel then gives him the interpretation of is that Babylon's going to fall and there's going to be other nations that come after you and Babylon's not going to be the greatest for long and others will rise and fall and that scares him to death. And here, when we get to chapter four, what happens is he has, he sees this dream and he gets this picture that uh, that, uh, Daniel tells him is that uh, about this great tree. And he says, King, this is you and this is all your accomplishments and it's about to be chopped down. You're going to be greatly humbled. And it says, right? He says in in verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid. The visions in my head alarmed me. And he's scared of this. But what Daniel comes and tells him as as he lays it out for him is this warning. He says, you're arrogant. This is what's coming for you. And he says, there's, he gets to the very end in verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What does he say? He says, humble yourself. Stop with the things that you're doing. You're not being righteous. You're being unkind and unjust to the oppressed. You're not doing the things that God tells you to do. And he says, but if you humble yourself, maybe God will spare you. And that's the dream that he has. And that's what... Daniel tells him, and he gives them this, this uh, interpretation. And so, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? If you've been following along in Daniel, you can probably guess what he's going to do, right? Well, what happens? Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace, palace of Babylon, right? So 12 months go by, nothing really changes, He kind of continues to do what he does. And then verse 30, he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as the royal residence for the glory of my majesty, right? Verse 30, he takes, uh, he claims to be the author of that, which is a gift. And he says it very arrogantly. Look at what I've done. And it's all me and it's all my doing. And it's all for my majesty. And at that very moment, It says, a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox 
And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He says, you're now going to be humbled and you're going to be humbled in a very uh, harsh way. Right? It, it kind of tells us here and it starts to show us the seriousness of pride that is so deep within us that it's often not easily dealt with. And so God says to him, he, he says, you're now going to have all this stripped away. And part of this is in response to his uh, arrogance and his pride. He's believing the lie that it's all about himself. And it's the same lie that all of us can believe so easily and so often. And so the problem with this spiritual pride is it begins to claim to be the author of that, which is a gift. Now, with Nebuchadnezzar, you could say, well, didn't he have a part in this? Right? Because I said at the beginning, the definition of pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievement. Didn't he have a lot to do with this? I mean, he was, after all, king of Babylon, and he led their kind of crusades and all the things that they they captured and all the stuff they did. And so part of that is like, wouldn't part of that be like he's just taking pride in his achievements? Partly, yes. And the truth is, a lot of times, a pride that is that is taking the gifts that we've been giving and just, just using them well, that there's a mixture of those and spiritual pride where I start to claim that which is a gift. Oftentimes those are all mixed together. And so, yes, I think part of that is true. But I want you to think for just a second about Nebuchadnezzar. Why was he born where he was born? Why did Nebuchadnezzar have the gifts to be a great leader, to be a great military leader, to ascend to be the king? Part of it's where he was born and the family he was born into and all these things that he could not control or he couldn't be part of, just like the athlete that's faster than his buddy. The same thing. But even more than that, and we know this because scripture tells us this, why did Nebuchadnezzar overtake Jerusalem and Israel? But the Bible actually tells us. It says God allowed Babylon to overtake Israel because of their rebellion. He told them that. You can go read about it all throughout the prophets, but you can read about it in Habakkuk chapter one. Habakkuk cries out to God and he says, Israel is a mess. And what are you going to do? And how are you going to fix it? And God goes, I'll tell you how I'm going to fix it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians to take you out. And Habakkuk goes, what? (laughs) You're going to do what? And he says, yeah, that's the way I'm going to deal with this. And so what it tells us, and that's 40 years before this happens God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to let the Babylonians take over. And so what he's showing us and what we see throughout scripture is nations rise and fall and God is sovereign over all of them. And Nebuchadnezzar has missed that. He's decided to claim to be the author of that which is a gift. And so that's the destructiveness of pride. That's that's what it is. But I want us now to think about where that leads, right? So what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? His great pride, he's walking along one day. Look at all that I've built. It's for my glory and my doing and my majesty. It's all me. And God says, uh, you're done. And now you're going to go out and you're going to live like an animal, right? Very literally, he's going to live like an animal. And you read that on its face and you go, what's happening here? He was driven from among men. This is verse 33. And he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven So his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like a bird's claws. He went crazy, right? I mean, he literally went out and was just living out in the fields, not cutting his hair and not, you know, letting his nails grow long. And he goes nuts. And you go, well, what's happening here? 
And so I was thinking about, well, what's God teaching us in this? Right? I mean, yes, he's humbling Nebuchadnezzar and he's showing him who is sovereign. But why like this? Why like an animal? One of the things I said at the very beginning of our series in Daniel, so this is the very first week as a kind of introduction to all of it. So one of the repeating themes of the book of Daniel is that God has created humans in his image to rule on his behalf, to walk humbly with him, following him, loving God and loving others. But when we don't embrace that and we instead embrace Babylon, it's disastrous and we become devouring beasts. And that's a theme that you see running through Daniel. You're going to see later in the book, there'll be more visions that Daniel has. And what happens is you see nations rising and falling and he sees all this before him. But the way God shows it to him is different animals. There's a bear and there's a lion and there's all these things and they're devouring each other. And it's showing us what happens when our arrogance and our pride takes over and we make it all about us and we ignore God and the world he's created. And this is what happens. And so he's showing us that with Nebuchadnezzar. But I want you to think about why he chooses to make him like an animal. Why he drives him out into the field and he begins to live this way. And I read this this week and I thought it was really good the way it was said. Tim Keller writing about this passage says, God is showing us that pride defaces our humanity. God's showing us that pride defaces our humanity. When we try to claim credit for God's grace and we try to be something more than what God's created us to be, we try to claim things that are a gift We say, I'm the author of this when God is the author of it. We try to be something more than what God created us to be. We actually become less. Pride causes us to move further away from what we are created to be. And I want to think, I want you just to think about why that is. We're created by God to walk humbly with him, loving and trusting God in all things. That God alone is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. And that we are made to worship him, not the gifts that he gives us. We thank him for the gifts he gives us, but we do so humbly recognizing that they're gifts, not taking credit for it. But when we do, we move away from the way we were created. We are created to love others, to be gracious and kind and long-suffering, to walk along with one another, helping each other to love God more fully. But when we believe it's all about us, we do the opposite. We begin to look down on other people. I have what I have because I did it and it's all me and I created it and I got it and they didn't. And I get what I deserve and they get what they deserve. And if I think I'm smarter than that person, then that's all me. I'm smarter. And we start to take credit for things that are actually a gift. And as soon as we do, we start to treat other people like Nebuchadnezzar treated other people. Like what we've seen already in this book. How did he treat other people? You give me what I want, when I want, or I kill you. Very literally. That's what he'd say. You tell me what my dream says, or I'm going to kill you and your family. That's what he said in chapter 2. And that's what happens when you get to this place of this arrogance, that I have what I have because of me, because I'm the author of that, which is a gift. When we get in that delusion, it leads us to treat people in that way. And the sad truth is it's not just with Nebuchadnezzar. It's rampant. In our world today, we do the same thing today. In our pride and our arrogance, we begin to treat people the same way that Nebuchadnezzar does. 
Instead of loving and caring for one another, we attack. Right? I've seen that so clearly in the last two years in our country. The divisions that are there. Right? Pandemic, elections, racism, our culture, the things that are there. And people pronounce, well, this is the way it is. And I've arrived and I know. And if you don't agree with me, you're an idiot. Friends, the heart of that is pride and arrogance. And look at how smart I am. And I've figured everything out. And when I do that, I no longer see people as made in God's image that I am called to love and care for, but they're the enemy and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I become less than human. I start to act like an animal. I mean, really, that's what's happening here. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that's what God is doing and showing him this way that he goes off and he lives like an animal because that's exactly what happens when we get so caught up in our own sense of who we are and what we've done. And it's all me. Our pride begins to treat other people like animals in relationships. What do you think about that? Why even say that as far as animals, animals can't sympathize with other people. They're driven by what they want and what they think. It's not their fault. They're animals, right? It's what an animal does. They don't ever stop and consider the other person. And I'm not picking on animals. I actually live in a zoo. I don't know if you know this. I have four dogs. I don't recommend that. Two's good. Four, you've now got a pack and they're kind of taking over the house. They're kind of in control at four. But our dogs are great. We have good, they're sweet, no problems. I love our dogs. Uh, one of my dogs is like the sweetest dog in the world. Wilma is a 70-pound, half Weimaraner, half poodle. And so she's like a big Weimaraner with crazy hair. And I think all she cares about is eating and you hugging her. That's it. That's all she cares about. But when I go to feed Wilma, I, I go into the laundry room. We have this big thing with the food in it, and you screw the top off. You've got to have a big thing with four dogs, so it's real big. And then you take the, the scoop, and I scoop it out, and I walk in the other room, and I drop it in her bowl. And then I walk back, and I put it back in there, and I screw the top back on, and I walk out, and she's done eating. 20 seconds, tops. She just devours, and it's gone. And I'll tell you, what Wilma never stops to think, she never stops to think, would anyone else like some of this food? (laughs) Right? Because she's a dog. That's what dogs do. I'm hungry. There's food. I don't know when it'll be there again. And so I'm going to eat it the second I see it. We do the same thing when pride overtakes us. We become all about ourselves and all about me and what I think and what I want and forget everybody else. And you see it rampant in our culture today. We get so overtaken by pride and arrogance and we begin to treat people in the exact same way. So what's the answer? Well, you see it here. God shows us with Nebuchadnezzar, you have to be humbled. Now for Nebuchadnezzar, it came in a really difficult way, did it not? And I would say to you that it's God's grace in the way that he deals with Nebuchadnezzar. And I'd also say to you that God's been doing this with Nebuchadnezzar for a long time before it gets to this point. Right? Chapter 2, he gives him this dream and he shows him all these things. And Daniel comes and tells him exactly what's going to happen and who God is and what he's doing. This miraculous sign that he gives him. And he kind of ignores it. Chapter 3, 
He puts up this big statue that everybody's got to bow down to and makes it all about himself and my kingdom and what I want. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego go, no, we're going to worship God and God alone. And you need to be humbled and you need to see that it's God and God alone. And what happens? God miraculously saves them and Nebuchadnezzar sees it. God again pursuing him and showing him and he ignores it and he goes right back to it. And then it comes to this. And so God is showing us all around us in different ways that we need to be humbled. Every single one of us in our self-centeredness, we get so kind of caught up and I'm the center of the world and it's all about me and it's all my doing. And so what does God do? He shows us our sin. He shows us his glory in creation. He shows us in our conscience the things that we know that we don't have right. Right? I mean, you think about it. Our arrogance, we kind of bury uh, with our pride and our arrogance all the things that we don't know. Right? We go, I'm quite certain that this is whatever. In the back of your mind, you know that you don't know. Right? Am I wrong on that? Like when you go, this is the answer for the pandemic and this is the way we got to do it. You know in the back of your mind, like, oh, there's a whole lot of stuff. I don't know about this. But your pride and your arrogance is like, I'm going to say it anyway. And we all do that. But God in his grace is continually showing us in our conscience, in his word, with other believers in our life, that we're sinners and that we don't see all of it, that we desperately need to be humbled. And as we're humbled and as we see that God is God and we are not, and it is only there that the gospel comes to bear, the good news of who God is. And that's what happens for Nebuchadnezzar here. It says seven times of, of what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know if that was seven months. Uh, most scholars think seven months or seven seasons, which would have been like 20 months. He literally lives like an animal. But he comes to the end of that and God humbles them. And in verse 34, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honor him who lives forever. Notice the change in his language. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. For his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted for as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. Right? It's a far cry from this is my kingdom and my doing and it's all me. And now he says it's all God. It's his doing and his kingdom. and He's the one. And when we're humbled in that, we see that we're going to stand before a holy, righteous God. That he is the one that created all things that he is the author and sustainer of all life. And as such, we answer to him. And that's radically humbling. To be honest, if you leave out the fullness of what God's doing for us in Jesus, it's terrifying. You're going to stand before a God who you're going to answer for every word that you've spoken and the way that you've treated every person that you've ever met and all the times when your pride and your arrogance overtook and that's the way you operated. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us there. That Jesus comes to us to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. That he is the center of the world. And there's no way that we can be made righteous in our own doing. But God is so perfect and so loving and so gracious. He comes to us to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so the first step is understanding that you're more sinful than you ever dared imagine. But then when you turn and you see Jesus, you see that you are more loved and accepted than you ever could hope. And so Jesus says, I will take your pride and I will take your arrogance and I will take all that you deserve from it and I will pay for it and I will give you my righteousness. 
as a gift by grace through faith. And it's there that our pride gets shrunk. It's there that it takes its proper place. I am more sinful than I ever dared imagine. And the only way that I will ever be made righteous is not my doing, but his. And it turns everything back to God in every way. And it's the only thing that deflates our pride. That I couldn't do this, but God did it for me. But here's the thing, as we talk about the remedy for what it is, it is the good news of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus. But I want to remind you as a believer, we become a believer and we see that truth and it starts to shrink our pride, but that doesn't mean we're done with it. Every day we wake up and it's still a battle. I can still go back to thinking it's all about me. And in fact, I do regularly. I quickly forget that and I start to slide back into that. And so that's why we say here all the time, we need to be fluent in the gospel. It needs to continually coming to bear on our life. We need to be reminding one another. And so God calls us to live in community, to be led by the spirit, to be reminded of who we are in Jesus daily. And so we need one another in that. We need to be surrounded by other believers that will speak the truth to us. When our pride wells up, that will pull us aside and go, hey, what's going on? Right? As I listened to that thing on, on Mars Hill and that church falling apart, you know, it's very absent all the way through it. It's the very top of the leadership of that church. No one could say that to him. Hey, your pride's getting kind of out of control. No one was there to say that. And when that happens, we become so susceptible, especially when things are going well. Because it is so easy to start to claim to be the author of that which is a gift. Anything good that we're ever going to do of lasting value is going to be by God's grace and nothing else. And we need to continually be reminding each other of that, holding Jesus as central in everything at all times. That's the remedy to our pride. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you love us, that you show us the areas of our heart where we have started to claim something that is not our own. That's something that you have done and that you have given us. I pray that you would help us today to see the reality of all the many gifts that you've given us that are not our doing, that you as the author and sustainer of life, that is you, the redeemer who continues to call us back to ourselves, that it's all you're doing. Would you show us that afresh today? Will we see that we stand by a righteousness that is not our own, but yours for us, that we'd be reminded daily that you love us and that you care for us and that you are working in these ways. Show us those areas where we start to miss that surround us by uh, our family of faith that will speak the truth to us and remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus and that it's all you and nothing else. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.